I want to read you something. The, by the way, this evening is uh, December 3rd. It's 2008. Tonight we're going to have a discussion on uh, rapture. Yeah. I get this question a lot. Uh, I am always fearful of being misquoted about these things. That's from experience. Um, people tend to hear what they want to hear for whatever reason. We've been taught to be dogmatic about our eschatology. Uh, I don't mean to use 50-cent words with you. Eschatology is simply the study of end times. And for whatever reason, people might can forgive whether you pray to the Father in Jesus' name or just pray to Jesus. They might be able to forgive whether or not you sprinkled or you dunked. But when we get right down to it, Anything other than their eschatological view is heresy. And uh, I want to tell you right first, I was guilty of this. I bought a painting for my parents when I got born again because I wanted to do something nice for them. And it was of a little old uh, white picket fence type church in the middle of the country with a sign out front that said, Closed due to rapture. And uh, I was very proud of it. it. It cost me more than a week's salary at the time. And so when I began to stumble on something in the Word uh, and was confronted with it in teaching, I was not very quick to receive this. And one reason that I was not quick to receive it, I am ashamed to admit today, was I just paid all that money for that painting. Uh, the other reason is I felt like being a, a young, charismatic zealot, uh, there was already enough about me that was unorthodox that I just didn't need to add anything else to the list. Um, having said that, the truth sets us free. So I'm not going to require that anybody agree with me tonight. I want to share with you some history, a few scriptures throughout. Please ask questions. There will be scriptures at times that come to mind, kind of a yeah, but. I won't be offended. I won't uh, think, oh, they're challenging me. That's, that's why we're doing this. Um, I've talked many, many times on this through the years. Uh, spent the first six, seven years of Christianity teaching almost exclusively on the resurrection and all of the variants uh, around it. As I became a pastor in charge of a church, I quickly found out you didn't need to know whether uh, it was pre-med, post, uh, amillennial, uh, preterist, as much as you need to know how to make it through a meeting with your boss tomorrow. So I don't teach on these things as much anymore. But they're still at the very core of my being, and I, I want you to, to have it. So uh, if we could open our discussion tonight, I need to read you something. You cannot discuss a pre-tribulation rapture view without crediting its founder. And uh, for those that might be listening to this and wondering what's going on, yes, Matt has pens and paper if you want them. Uh, let me go ahead and drop the bomb on you now. I do not in any way, shape, or form believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. I'm convinced in my heart that it is uh, absolutely false. So if that makes you hate me, uh, that's okay. Hear me out. If it makes you love me, then good. You can come over for dinner. Uh, I want to start with this book. It says, Evangelical Dictionary of Theology. This is a very well-respected publication. It's used in seminaries around the country. I'm told that it is a a textbook that you're required to purchase when you enter Dallas Theological Seminary. Having not been there, that's just something that I was told. Uh, I want to read you a couple lines from this. The most influential British leader of the separatist 
Plymouth Brethren movement, also known as Darbyites, and systematizer of dispensationalism. He was born in 1800 and lived to 1882. So Darby lived to be an old fellow. Uh, he started like almost every theologian, this is an interesting point, as an attorney. Uh, he became an attorney at 22 years of age and after that became an Anglican minister. Well, for whatever reason, attorneys are gifted with systematizing things, laying out logical arguments. Calvin is among the best. He started as an attorney as well and was only born again about two years when he created some of the doctrines that most Protestants hold to today. Uh, in 1828, so he's 28 years old, he left the Anglican Church. Some things that Darby can be credited with that are excellent, things that he would praise us for and we would praise him for. He looked at a separation between clergy and laity and said, this is ridiculous, uh, something's wrong. And he thought that there should be no separation between clergy and laity. He went so far in his attack on denominationalism, though, that he said that all denominations, period, were apostate uh, of the devil. Now, people that have followed me for a while uh, know that I've come dangerously close to that. God's opened my eyes through the years and a little maturing and meeting people from various backgrounds. I found out that's not true. That's an overreaction. Uh, they may not be great, but there's some good things in them. Uh, having said this, Darby starts uh, attending some groups with other pastors and people that are meeting in homes that became known as the Plymouth Brethren Groups. Now, what's interesting about this is, according to this book, it says, after 1840, sharp divisions between Darby and other brethren teachers erupted over increasingly narrow theological and ecclesiastical questions. So after about 12 years in this group, they began to fight, and it began to fracture, and it began to split. As a result, Darby became the leader of the exclusive group after a bitter controversy with B.W. Newton. B.W. Newton was the pastor of this group when Darby came. B.W. Newton and Darby split ways over two specific things. Uh, I'll tell you what they are, and then I'll read you some other quotes. The first is, they all believed that the gifts of the Spirit were moving and were applicable to the church today. Until B.W. Newton experienced the gifts, one Bible dictionary calls him a proto-charismatic, and Mr. Darby did not. Uh, I'll read you a quote from Dallas Theological quoting Darby that says that he is credited with the idea, first person in history to write it down, that the gifts have ceased because the perfection of the canon came. So when we're talking about Mr. Darby, there's some wonderful things about him, but we need to know that he came into conflict with his brothers because some spoke in other tongues and he did not. And he quickly developed a systematic theology based on Corinthians 13 that says, mm, can't happen, it ceased. Well, his pastor experienced it. So this caused a, a division. Uh, another area of division starts right here. He divided history into two separate eras or dispensations, each of which contained a different order by which God worked out his redemptive plan. The age of the church like all preceding periods, has ended in failure due to man's sinfulness. Darby broke not only from previous teachings, but from all of church history by asserting that Christ's second coming would occur in two stages. 
the first time in history that it was ever taught that Jesus came back in the sky and then later to the earth was when John Nelson Darby did it. Nobody can nail down this date for certain, but it came into being between 1830 and 1845 and was not taught popularly. That's a hard word for me to say. Sorry about that. Until the Civil War. Uh, Darby began making trips from England and Ireland to the United States during the time period of the Civil War teaching this. Now, you need to consider something. In all of church history, before 1845, it had never at any time been put into writing that there was a Jesus coming part A and part B. Uh, There was only His second coming. No one had ever expounded that theory. No one had ever written it down. None of the Protestant reformers, none of the apostles, Nowhere do you find that, not in any commentary. Incidentally, something that is similar to things that we might teach at times, a similarity, Darby also taught against commentaries until, of course, he wrote a commentary. (laughs) And after he wrote a commentary, his views changed. Uh, I don't speak against commentaries, but at times I see people rely on them more than the ability to hear from God themselves. So I think something started pure in these groups and good, but you'll have to judge its fruit uh, as you see it. Uh, His eschatological views were propagated through a series of Bible prophecy conferences. These uh, largely occurred in the late 1800s. I have for you, I'm going to put on the screen, a prophecy from a woman named Margaret MacDonald. Now, historians argue whether or not Darby was influenced by her. But I'll show you quotes from his own diary where he admits to having met her, admits to having heard the prophecy, and said that it had an influence on him. She was born in 1815. She was a 15-year-old girl when she began prophesying. Isn't it interesting that a man may have gleaned his systematic theology from a girl who prophesied, but he himself did not believe in prophecy? Doesn't that seem strange? She began prophesying in a series of revivals in which she claims that she saw the church fly away. Now, if that seems strange to you, I want you to know that she also said that a man named Robert Owen, who is the founder of New Harmony, Indiana, was the Antichrist in the same prophecy. This had dramatic impacts on people, though. And the reason that it did was the world was facing struggle like it had never known. This is after America's Civil War. This is before the First World War. Uh, really becomes popular during the Great Depression, honestly. And people were looking for a way to escape what was going on. Now, I'm going to actually get into the Word with you, I promise. This is just, I want you to understand that this is a relatively new doctrine. But it seems that because some of the most ardent preachers of the day men who believed in the inerrant word were uh, exposed to this and the only people that were in positions of power that opposed this view took a very liberal approach to the scripture that a culture developed and the culture was called fundamentalism and what it meant was if you believed in the inerrant literal word of God you needed to fall into this camp if you didn't you were considered a a liberal okay So uh, all these guys kind of got lumped in together. A man named Schofield wrote a study Bible in 1909. It was revised in the 60s. But it was one of the first study Bibles. 
He had been exposed to the teachings of Darby, and in his study Bible, he made notes about dispensationalism. It said that in the first versions of the study Bible, it was difficult to tell the notes from the Scripture. I personally have not seen that. I don't know if that's the case. But I can tell you that Schofield made this popular. Uh, you're going to see a Word document pop up here in a moment. I want to read you a couple of highlighted phrases. Uh, let's see. Though pre-tribulationists try to find the teaching throughout church history, in about 1830, John Nelson Darby was the first to divide the second coming in two stages. This is a second source, if you will. The view was derived from his total distinction between church and Israel. This is an important part, something that you need to understand. The teaching of rapture is dependent upon God dealing differently with one group of people based on their nationality, Israel, than the church. And what it basically says, what is basically dependent upon, is God is through with Israel for a time period. And He's through with them because they failed when they rejected Messiah. So the kingdom of God that was promised to them, promised to the earth, cannot happen, and God had to insert something that Darby called a parenthetical church age. In other words, a parenthesis. They call it the great parenthesis. In other words, oops, it's not working. Here's a plan B for a while. When God completes the great parentheses, He removes the church and again begins working with Israel. And of course, it starts with a second holocaust with them, all kind of tortures, all kind of horrible things, while the church is nowhere to be found. Now, we're going to get into the Word about this as much as time permits, but immediately Scripture should be coming to mind. There is one new man made up of Jew and Gentile, not two separate entities. But Darby's entire theory is dependent upon a strict distinction between the two. Uh, as you scan down, and by the way, there's footnotes for all of these. I'll give you all of these notes. Um, that's about his clash with his pastor. Uh, his prophetic influences influence such men as Dwight Moody of Chicago, who's a hero of the faith, A.J. Gordon of Boston, and James Brooke of St. Louis. So these are a time period where men were banding together to reform the church in a manner of speaking, but that didn't make everything that they did right. Uh, listen to this quote. Darby saw in Scripture two totally different, distinct divine plans for history, one concerning an earthly people, Israel, the other a heavenly people, the church. God's plan for Israel was revealed through a series of covenants which pointed to the establishment of the Messianic kingdom on earth. But when Messiah came, Israel rejected him. God then postponed the kingdom, turned away from Israel, and created out of the Gentiles a new people, the church. According to this postponement theory, God will not resume his dealings with Israel until he finishes building the church and raptures it to heaven. Uh, this split the Plymouth Brethren split them right down the middle. It ended the Bible conferences as well, and almost no American clergy accepted this uh, in the beginning. But after a civil war and a Great Depression and a First World War, it began to gain acceptance, especially in the South. Um, Lewis S. Schaefer, who founded Dallas Theological Seminary in 1924, wrote the movement's most influential systematic theology. It was entirely based on Darby's work regarding eschatology. So this is why this was such a predominant area in the South. In the 1980s, dispensationalism finds able defenders in John Valford, who I love, Charles Ryrie, who I, it's my very first Bible he wrote. Not wrote, but 
Study Bible wrote, Dwight Pentecost, all from Dallas Theological Seminary. So our area's greatest teachers all had this as their predominant influence. But remember, it didn't exist before 1845. Uh, this is about him. Uh, by the way, F.F. Bruce is the one that wrote, who was not charismatic, that B.W. Newton and Darby split over the issue of uh, gifts because B.W. Newton experienced them and uh, Darby did not. I say all of that to say, if people want to be incredibly dogmatic, they need to recognize at least the historical truth that this was never taught, not anywhere in history, no earlier than 1830, never in print before 1845, and never popular until the 20th century. Uh, having said that, uh, I thought we ought to cover some of the scriptures that it is uh, surrounding. Can anybody name a scripture that has to do with rapture? How about First Thessalonians four? What? Okay, we'll turn there. Thanks. If you would like the copy of uh, Margaret McDonald's uh, prophecy or any of these sources, please do ask me. I've been teaching this stuff for years. I usually just tell you it as fact. I would like to be able to show you how to find it. The thoughts occurred to me that there are a lot of things that you may believe because I'm your pastor, but I need you to be able to derive it organically from the text. Alright, while you're turning there, if you wonder why on earth this would be important, <laughs> misunderstanding the first coming of Jesus caused an entire nation built in their very culture to not understand God's working through Jesus. So that the majority of a nation in that generation stumbled and missed it. Well, if the majority of God's church has a misunderstanding about the second coming... While you may not be able to miss it, you certainly could be unprepared for it. Uh, does that make sense? Okay, so 1 Thessalonians. This is, by the way, if you take out a concordance, the word rapture does not appear anywhere in your Bible. It comes from the idea of rapture meaning caught up. Isn't it interesting that Latin is where this comes from? One of the reasons that attorneys made good theologians during this time period is they already knew Latin and all the body of work that had been written through the medieval church period was Latin. So uh, this gave them the ability to read things that other people couldn't read. didn't make them right, though. First uh, Thessalonians 4, uh, starting in verse 13. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. So we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will be with the Lord forever. When we read this, let me first say I do not deny at all that there is a rapture. Okay, uh, A missionary friend of mine who I love very much heard somebody say, Eric doesn't believe in a rapture, meaning Eric does not believe in the rapture as it's popularly taught. 
And in tears, he said, how could you believe that Jesus is not coming back again? Well, Eric just likes to stick to biblical terminology. And since rapture is not in it, I talk about the resurrection. The man misunderstood, and for some period of months, if not years, he thought that our church did not believe in the second coming of Jesus. We believe in the second coming of Jesus. We just don't believe there's a part 2A and 2B. I'm looking for one coming of Jesus one time. Uh, what we can derive from this text is that when He returns, whoever is dead in Christ will rise to meet Him first. Can you imagine that the dead all over the world who are in love with Jesus rise to meet Him and that be a secret event? But a tenet of rapture that's largely being backed away from, but as Darby taught it, was that this event would be secret. How Lindsay taught that. Late great planet Earth that he wrote in 1970 defined the view of a nation had people secretly vanishing all over the planet with neatly folded piles of clothes. Uh, all of the Old Testament canon of Scripture says that the whole world is looking forward to this. The book of Revelation says every eye will see it. To which the group that belongs to secret rapture replies, that's talking about coming to be, not to act. There's going to be a secret one, then one everybody sees. Um, I don't know how to defend that. I don't see that in the text. But I do believe that we rise to meet the Lord in the air, anybody who's alive at His coming, and that the dead have to assemble there first. The question is, what happens then? Uh, is First Thessalonians the only letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians? No. No. If anybody misunderstood what he said in the first letter, wouldn't it be good to have a follow-up letter? Wouldn't it be nice if we had that? Don't you wish there was a library somewhere that contained a second letter to the Thessalonians? Do you all know of such a letter anywhere? That's right. You can turn to the right in your Bible. And in 2 Thessalonians, it's amazing how he begins the second chapter. It's almost as if he knew somebody might misunderstand this. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to Him. Is there any doubt we're talking about the same event that occurred in 1 Thessalonians 4? Probably not, huh? Concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus and our being gathered to Him. Isn't that what people describe as a rapture? Y'all talk to me or I won't know what to do. Okay. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy. Now, I'm not suggesting that you do it, but I have a woman's name written right out next to that with a date. I guess you don't have to guess who it is. Prophecy, reporter letter, supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. That caused a problem for me the very first time I read it. If we would not be here, how could they think it had already come? But let's not get sidetracked. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day, what day? The day of the Lord and our being gathered to Him will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction. Um, anybody like to tell me what you think that means? That's right. Okay, well, what day won't come? You think Paul was trying to trick us? 
It, it's interesting to me that when rapture scriptures are quoted, it's always the same chapter in Daniel. It's always First Thessalonians 4.17. And there's little more. The next best, greatest argument is that in the third chapter of Revelation, uh, God tells John, come up here, and after that the church isn't mentioned. I want you to understand that I believe very much in symbolic interpretation where it's warranted. But I don't start with symbolic interpretation and work my way backwards to something literal. We start with what the text says and then as a last resort consider symbolism. To take the fact that the church is not mentioned by name in the book of Revelation after the third chapter to support a doctrine alone doesn't seem wise to me. Uh, but that's about all there is in the depth of this argument. Those three scriptures. And I'll invite you all throughout any you can think of in a minute. But I want to finish reading this to you and then we'll turn to Matthew 4, 24 where Jesus was literally asked this question and see how He answered it. The reason that I do this is aside from the history and I don't want to defame the man, in many ways he and I would be great friends until he heard me pray. But we would be great friends. It's just that he had great ideas that are not right. And can you relate to that? You don't know what you don't know until you learn you didn't know it. Yes, ma'am. Where's the scripture that talks about the, um, the one will be in the field and the other just Amazingly enough, that's Matthew 24. And I will show you that tonight. But isn't there a scripture in the Old Testament that shows that it's actually the evil that are left that's in Exodus and I will show you that tonight I will as much as time permits but uh, all of us that got born again around the same time had the same bumper stickers uh, caution you know vehicle be unmanned during rapture all of those things and all of the Bible teachers that we knew all of them subscribed to the same view I only ever met in my whole life a couple popular preachers who didn't so what I'm getting at here is men like Jimmy Swaggart, who I admire. Please don't speak badly of Jimmy Swaggart. I admire him. The only alternative to the view that he was taught were people that were liberal and did not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. So it's kind of like you have to throw out the baby with the bathwater. If the only alternative is a group of liberal theologians, then there, there was nothing else to choose from. This was the environment in our seminaries in the early part of the last century. And so the core that stuck together all began to believe the same thing about their end times views as well. Uh, and, and Jimmy Swaggart's not even a good example of that. Uh, Hal Lindsey would be a good example of that. Phenomenal. The guy's probably forgotten more about the Word than I know about the Word. But that doesn't make him right about every area of the Word. Let's finish reading this. We'll go to Matthew 24. That'll answer lots of questions. Um, are being gathered to him. That day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction. Well, how will we know who he is? Oh, there's another verse. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. You know what's amazing about that is this happened several times in history. Uh this uh, is the abomination of desolation that Daniel spoke of. Jesus told us to look for it in Matthew 24. It had happened under Antiochus Epiphanes. It happened again nearly under Herod Agrippa I. Uh, 
the emperor at the time, Caligula, wanted to set up a statue and Herod talked him out of it. It would have happened then. It did happen again later under Titus when they destroyed the temple. This is the spirit of the Antichrist that wants to usurp God. Okay? So how will you know when you see the Antichrist? Or the man, at least the lawless man? Well, this is something he wants to do. But the church is expecting to see it and the letters say so. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. A major tenet of pre-tribulation rapturists is that the church must be removed in order for this to happen. But friends, didn't he just tell the church that they should expect to see this and the day would not happen until this occurs? I don't believe that the he here refers to the church. By the way, you won't find a masculine pronoun referring to the church anywhere else in Scripture. I personally think that he here refers to something Daniel 12 speaks of, the prince who watches over God's people. Uh, but I, when we have time, I'll show you that. Are there questions before we move from here? Because uh, this is a complicated subject, and I know that, and I want you to begin to engage. Yes, ma'am? It, it specifically mentions the temple, so the temple must be standing. Must be standing. One of the things that makes this pre-tribulation rapture a popular to evangelicals like us is because coming from a background of clergy and liturgy, what would happen is... Uh, the things we criticize in, in the older denominations. People become stagnant in their ways. This was a way to shock an audience and say, Jesus could return at any moment. Are you ready for Him? Because it could happen right now. And it was a way of closing the sale, so to speak. Filling altars. And so it catches on. If you're expecting to see a temple, then there's not a temple there. If you're expecting to see certain signs fulfilled and they are not yet there, uh, there is a chance that virgins don't keep oil in their lamps, which is what Jesus spoke of. And a well-intended meaning to correct that, uh, they created a sense of closing for the church. I don't believe they meant to, but it happens everywhere. How many sermons have you heard closed with those words? Yeah. You know? um, were there other questions for women? No, what... I believe he is Michael, the prince who watches over God's people, found in Daniel 12. But it's not necessary that you believe that to understand this. The chronology simply here is that when we rise to meet the Lord in the air, we can never again be separated from Him. We cannot be gathered to Him until the man of lawlessness is revealed. And when He's revealed, uh, He's going to go into the temple and proclaim Himself God. Uh, by the way, why don't we read the rest of this? And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of His mouth and destroy by the splendor of His... Coming. What coming? Maybe the only one He ever talked about. The second coming. So if He's going to be revealed and destroyed, and we're supposed to look for that, we must be here. That's my basic contention. And uh, this may not be a cleverly invented story, and it may not be complex enough to become attractive, uh, but it is plainly stated. Does that make sense to y'all? I used to take out a chalkboard and list the seven things that we find in First Thessalonians 4. Then I would list the same order of events in Second Thessalonians 2. I found out that that made it too complicated. If you just read it, uh, it, it actually says it. Uh, having said that, let's go to Matthew 24. You'll be thinking of the Yabat Scriptures. 
there are a bunch of them because we've all been taught them. I can quote them for you if you can't come up with them here and there. But it's more fun if you quote them. You know? it, 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 it's not very good if I set up a straw argument and knock it down. That's not very impressive. It's better if you actually engage in the process. Uh, uh, in Matthew 24, what does the title say above it? Now, granted, that is not in the original text, right? But somebody must have thought that this was the signs of the end of the age, or they wouldn't have put that title there, would they? Uh, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to his buildings. Do you see all these, he asked. I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. You know, it's amazing that actually happened. It happened in AD 66 through 70 by Titus, who came in and did that very thing. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? When will what happen? The temple be torn down. When will this happen? That's what he just said would happen. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Isn't that three questions? When's the temple going to be torn down? When will you come? And when will the end of the age be? Doesn't that sound like three questions to you? If you asked me three questions, how offended would you be if I just didn't answer them? Well, you'd vote for me for president. We can see that in our elections. <laughs> Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. We have people groups fighting, and even kingdoms. Kingdoms of light and darkness, in my opinion. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginnings of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. Then you will be... What? To be persecuted and put to death. Well, that must be talking about those Jews because we need to divide the Jews from the church, right? Why? It's one people group. One people of God. Well, maybe we're just talking about before the temple is destroyed. You're right. No Christian's ever been persecuted in history since. Huh? At that time, many will turn away from the faith. Isn't it interesting that the same people that created the other doctrine said that's not possible? <laughs> At that time, many people will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Do you think that what we're talking about is important given the stakes? If you believe that God is going to rescue you out of any situation rather than through it, how well do you think you'll do if you're a Christian in the Sudan right now? Don't go be a missionary in Pakistan. The love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. He who stands firm to the end of what, I wonder? And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. When will the end come? The end of the age. It's got to be preached everywhere. That certainly did not happen in the first century. I've read the books by the Preterists. I'm very impressed by Gary DeMar and some of their arguments. And they're beautifully, logically well laid out. But there is no way to say that the entire globe received the gospel in the first century. So this is evidently yet to be fulfilled. 
and the love of many, the love of most, will grow cold. It's only he who stands firm to the end. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, that sounds amazingly like 2 Thessalonians 2, does it not? What's going to be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Well, you're going to see somebody standing in the holy place. Spoken through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be for those in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in the winter or on the Sabbath. I hate to admit this, but I have met Christians that because the word flight here is used, misunderstand its English rendering and believe that that is a birdie flight. Flight is the, the movement of a large group of people not leaving the earth. One commentator, including Darby, points out that all of these things are happening in Israel, so it is only Israelites he's talking to. Well, all you Gentiles are damned then because this whole book was talking to Jews in Israel. The mystery of the gospel was that we get included with them as one new people, not two separate distinct groups. So to point to this scripture and say, well, it must only be talking about Jews because we're talking about a Jewish setting. Well, what do you do with all the rest of the Jewish scripture? What book would we have? That's right, they were all written by Jews. Can you name one that wasn't? We fight hard to say Luke wasn't. I make a pretty decent argument that he was. Pray that your flight will not take place in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world till now and never to be equaled again. How bad was the Holocaust, friends? Some of you in here were alive during World War II. And when you weren't, your parents were. How bad was World War II? Say it wasn't bad in America. How bad was it in Poland? There's going to be distress upon the earth that had never been equaled and will never be again. These are things Jesus told His followers to look for. Why would He do that? Because they'll never see it. Are you kidding me? In those, If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. For the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. Well, the elect refers to Israel. Well, what does that mean about you then? Elect are those who are saved. Israel first, then the Gentiles. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there He is, do not believe it, for false prophets in Christ will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. See, I've told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there He is out in the desert, do not go out, or here He is in inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Doesn't that sound like this will be a visible event that every person will see? Lightning flashes in the east and you can see it even in the west. Where is Jerusalem from here? East. He's standing on the Mount of Olives when he's saying this, the place that Zechariah said that he would return. And his, his coming is described as... Uh, splendorous, glorious, all of the uh, angels. When you read the things that are written throughout the psalm, it sounds like a giant glowing event. And it's going to be seen by every eye, Revelation says. How then can we begin to even consider a theory that says it will be a secret? 
Wherever there is a carcass, there vultures will gather. I believe that that's a reference to Abraham, but uh, I don't have time to teach it. Immediately after the distress of those days, you might circle the word after, after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, when is that time? After the distress of those days, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great authority. See, when I read First and Second Thessalonians and Matthew 24, it seems abundantly clear to me that our catching up to the Lord in the air is after the distress of those days because it's plainly stated in two of the three books. But it might be easier to build a church if I told you you would not have to do these things. It might produce a bigger altar call if I told you, no, you don't have to wait for a temple to be rebuilt. There's no waiting. He could come back any moment. If your parents were missionaries in the Congo when they were raped and butchered, though, you'd wonder where their rapture was, wouldn't you? (laughs) And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. He goes on to tell us uh, about Israel being like a fig tree. But I want to get to the scripture that Lindy mentioned. And if questions come up, please. I know we're going to run out of time here. It's too big of a subject to cover in 30 minutes. No one knows about the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Pause there for a minute for me. What was it like in the days of Noah? Somebody describe it. You talk to me. What? There's lawlessness, and so what happens? God's going to destroy the lawless, so what happens? The righteous get in the boat, and what happens? It rains, and the floodwaters do what? So the righteous people are saved, and what happens to the wicked people? They're washed away. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. Who did the flood take away? The wicked. The righteous were saved, and the wicked were taken away. This is a scripture that you will see next to a man's feet flying off of a canvas that says one will be taken and the other left. It starts right here and it, it keeps going. It is the wicked who are taken away. You know what Proverbs 10.5 says? 10.25? says the floodwaters come, the righteous stand forever, but the wicked are washed away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two will be in a field. One will be taken and the other left. What would make you think taken here is a good thing? I was taught to read that taken was raptured. Tell me, in its context of Noah, is taken not taken in judgment? Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Put your finger here. Read with me Exodus 11.5 and tell me Jesus is not alluding to something. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the slave girl who is at her handmill. 
and the firstborn of the cattle as well. Who was who died in Egypt? The one that was taken in death at the handmill. See, it's only when you put on the glasses that say it must be this way and then read the Scripture in that light that this interpretation comes off the page at you. When you read it, in my opinion, for what the text just seems to say, it'd be hard to come up with a pre-tribulation rapture. Maybe that's why for 1,845 years of church history, no one ever had. You understand that? Never. Not anywhere. But if we walk down this street right now, whether we're talking about Methodists, Baptists, or Assemblies of God, the vast majority of people in there will throw their hymnal in your face if you tell them there is no pre-tribulation rapture. Why have we been taught to be so dogmatic about something that is at best sketchy in the Scripture? You ever been insecure about something? You ever been a little touchy about your weight? So somebody says, those are nice pants. And you say, what do you mean? <laughs> you don't have to be insecure about something that is plainly stated in the Word. You do have to be insecure about it if you feel like you're a bit on shaky ground. He tells them to keep watch. He tells them to keep watch. What would they be looking for if there are no signs to be fulfilled? I know that we're going to have to close here. Can nobody give me another scripture that you're worried about? About rapture? How about we go to 1 Thessalonians 5? See if I can help you here. When you get to 1 Thessalonians 5, can anybody tell me where it's at? I wanted this to be more conversational. I apologize for talking as much as I am. I don't know how in 30 minutes to do this. We're going to have to extend church services. <laughs> so read it. Maybe we should start a little further up because the thief in the night rapture starts with these words. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. That's usually all you hear quoted. It's going to surprise us. Thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on pregnant women and they will not escape like the people were washed away by the floodwaters or the handmaiden at the grain silo was taken in judgment. But you, brothers, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. i give you one more. I hate to present this side of the argument, but go to Revelation. I can find it, Ed. I'm still looking. Revelation 3.10. There's an hour of trial coming on the whole earth. So this is the last bastion of the pre-tribulation argument as I've been taught. Revelation 3.10. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently... <coughs> I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. <coughs> Some are going to be kept from the trial. That's what I was taught. See, they're raptured. Anybody tell me a problem with that? <coughs> this is written to the church in Philadelphia. Yeah. Why didn't he say that to the other six churches? Hmm? <coughs> a man named John, exiled on the island of Patmos, writing to present-day churches, spoke about events 
in their day, like a marketplace called the Megora, where you had to take a mark to go buy and sell. Like uh, the throne of a Caesar, who is considered to be God, who had some things for and other things against. Like figures called Death and Hades, who were in the Roman Praetorium and uh, Hippodrome, uh, that cleared the dead. He spoke to them about things in their lives. But this view takes this one church, none of the others, only this one church takes this one phrase and applies it to us and says we're going to be raptured. Did, what does that mean for Peter? What does that mean for James, the first apostle to be martyred? How about Stephen, the first evangelist to be martyred? What does that mean for them? How about friends that are dying in China right now? Does it not apply to them? And then if, if we can't find the Scripture, then what we'll do is we'll resort to an analogy. Would God beat His bride? Saints, could you really answer that question? Would God beat His bride? He delights in the death of His saints. It says it in three places in the Psalms. He delights in it. Why does He delight in it? Because Hebrews says they didn't shrink back from death. They loved Him to the point of shedding blood. Now, the point here is not to become equally dogmatic about uh, a different view of eschatology. The point here is to get into the Word and to study and to not simply accept at face value slogan Christianity that is based on bumper stickers. Now, here's something that we'll invite, okay? Because the first time I heard this, I was angry. Uh, I was angry because my painting was no longer worth anything and I felt stupid. Uh, the next time I heard it, I warmed to it a little bit, but I was still too prideful to admit it. By the time I realized what it meant for Israel, uh, I started to get it. And then I started to examine the kingdoms mentioned throughout the Old Testament, how many there would be and what the Jewish expectation was. Now it's difficult for me to conceive that I ever bought into this. But for some of you, it may be the first time you've heard it. For others, it may be just not all that important. You know who it's incredibly important to? Israel. And when you are in Israel, you know what they believe evangelicals are waiting for? Them to die. You are going to be uh, taken out of here because God loves you more than them. They are going to be murdered and then the kingdom of God can be set up. And they've been taught that the only reason a Christian would show any kindness to them or want to see anything good happen for them is because we know that as Israel begins to warm towards the Lord, we get to escape while they get tortured. Yeah. 60 Minutes did a special that was popularized all over Israel where a Bible teacher named Hal Lindsey explained that one-third of all Jewish people would die in the tribulation and that the church would not be here. And so they are taught that that's what you're waiting for. Them to die so you can be saved. Does that sound a little bit anti-Semitic to you? Yes. Does that mean that people who believe in rapture are anti-Semitic? No, you probably didn't know before I just told you. Okay, I want to believe the truth with all my heart. And I don't want anything that is not truth. Now, we didn't get into mid-trib and post-trib and all of those things. But you know what we did just do? We did absolutely, in my view, guarantee that you're going to have to see and face an antichrist. 